You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. How do you talk about a lifetime of activism and political work in only 30 minutes? Well, you can't, really, but we sure did try. This is Below the Radar, and our next guest is Libby Davies, a lifelong activist and former member of parliament for Vancouver East, who got her start organizing and advocating for people in the downtown east side community over 40 years ago. My name's Melissa Roach. And I'm Jamie Lee Gonzalez, and we're your hosts for this episode, talking to Libby about the history of organizing in the neighborhood, as well as her experiences as an activist and a woman in politics. We're also talking to her about her recently released book about those experiences called Outside In, a political memoir. Which will be launching at SFU later this month on May 22nd, and you are all invited to join us to hear more from Libby then. And she's also invited a panel of guests to be in conversation with her. We really enjoyed doing this interview, and we hope you enjoy listening to it. Hi, Libby. Hello. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming in today. Oh, My I'm, pleasure. We are excited to talk to you about your memoir, Outside In, and we're very excited to be launching it later this month. It's something I've been looking forward to for a long time. <laughs> uh, and we were talking about the book and... Uh, remarking on what an incredible storyteller you are, uh, which I I remember know from hearing you speak before, but um, it's just it's a joy to read as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, reading these like, glowing reviews, uh, I came across the term people are saying because you you do this work at the kind of intersection of social justice and politics, which you think would be uh, you know not intersecting, but um, one in the same <laughs> in, in my mind sometimes yeah. but I came across the term uh, activist politician so I wanted to ask you uh, what does it mean to you to be an activist politician or is that is that how you'd identify yourself because you you talk about the need for activists advocates politicians to all work together um, but how does it change conversations around the table of people who are elected when representatives come from activist backgrounds Well, I think it's a really good way to start. And often, you know, when I would go to meetings, I would never introduce myself as a politician because it had such a, it does still have such a negative connotation for people, this idea of a politician. It's like an insider, someone who only cares about themselves and their political advancement, you know. And so I always used to say, well, I was an MP or um, an elected representative. Um, And so the idea of an activist politician to me has always uh, reflected on the idea that your purpose, your involvement is something bigger than the formal, sometimes very small world of of politics, right? Whether it's in Ottawa, whether it's provincially, whether it's locally, right? It's um, the formal world of politics can be tight, it can be 
um, you know, the, the inside game. And so this idea that we have to get beyond that, we have to find these connections between social movements, activism, and the political world. We can't, each other can't ignore each other, right? Um, and so that it, that's fascinated me over 40 years, this connection or lack of connection between what I would call sort of social movement politics or activism and the more formal world of politics and why do we collide so often? Why do we misunderstand what we do? Why, why are we not better allies and on the progressive side? Why aren't we working together more closely when we know who the real, I hate to use the word enemy, but when we know what the real forces against us are? Why aren't we working together more closely? So that's always fascinated me. And I wanted to kind of bring that out. And I've always seen myself as that kind of bridge because I lived, worked in both worlds, right? And But really, I always saw myself as an organizer. Even when I was in Ottawa, it was like my Ottawa job. <laughs> and so this idea that I was still an organizer at heart, that's how I approached things, that's how I approached politics, was very much part of my kind of political DNA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that is a great start because that, for me, that captures a lot of like the flavor of the book. Yeah. <laughs> really. Um, and you're in such a great, like you said, acting as that bridge, and you've worked at so many different levels uh, mm-hmm. municipally and uh, all the way to Ottawa. Um, my other question uh, is about the book itself, the memoir. Uh, how was the process of writing a memoir for you? Uh, I know it's. Uh, kind of a, a long a long process and uh, memory works in kind of tricky ways I find <laughs> like you don't always remember things in chronological order you can't just recall things at will uh, how was that experience for you and were there any stories that came up after you said here's my final here's my final draft here's the book were there things that came up after that you're like oh I wish that could have uh, come to me earlier I love that question because um, people don't often ask you about the process itself. It took me two years on and off. Um, I remember once talking to Olivia Chow, and she said, How? In fact, it was just last summer, and she said, How's it coming? And I said, Well, you know, I'm getting there. And she said, Oh, for God's sake, just go hire a ghostwriter. It'll be done in two months. <laughs> and I was like, No, I'm still plugging away at it. But you know what? I love the writing. And in a weird way, that was the easy part. I couldn't stop. Um, I did it all on an iPad with two fingers. <laughs> I don't have a, I don't have a um, laptop or a desktop. It's all on my iPad. Um, and weirdly, the most challenging part was after I'd done, you know, the first several drafts and starting doing the editing. I worked with a wonderful editor in Toronto, Tillman Lewis. And it was like the technical challenges of doing the tracking and, you know, is it this or this? And I'm not very good at technical stuff. So that was actually strangely really hard. Not hard, but I found it frustrating. So the actual writing, I mean, I think I had all this stuff stored up in my brain for 40 years and it just started spilling out. But you're absolutely right, Melissa. Like, even now, it's like, oh, my God, I didn't say this. I forgot about that. And so the process of writing itself, and I'm sure many people have experienced this, even when you write a paper, right, the very process of writing 
triggers your memory. But I think what was more important for me was talking to people. I didn't talk to a lot of people. I felt so shy about kind of writing this. I didn't like share it all over the place. Fat Am Johal was, I think, the first person who read the first draft. And it was like, oh, what's he going to say? But actually speaking with people really triggered my brain to remember things because I, I really wanted to remember these early days in the downtown east side even before it was called the downtown east side because there's actually not many people left who were there at that time I mean I'm still here Jean Swanson is still here but there's very few people left and I thought my god we've got to put this down on paper right um, and so I would often phone up Jean and say, Jean, do you remember when we did this? And it was weird. We'd have completely different. She'd go, oh, I forgot that, but I do remember this. Yeah, so, so that, interesting. So, you know, it's really a very dynamic process of um, your memory, right? And But I can absolutely tell you that even now I'm thinking, wow, there's so much I did not say that I should have said in the mm-hmm. book. But, you know, you also have to be manageable and you I mean I, I think I could have written a whole book just on the downtown east side mm-hmm. part you know there was a lot more to say but I wanted to like cover distance and all the stuff that happened mm-hmm. yeah yeah how do you distill 40 years of experience well actually how many that's, pages? A, that's yeah. really good because the other challenge it's one thing to like madly write everything out that you remember you know and to try and make it colorful and interesting but how you develop the overall narrative like in the themes mm-hmm. um, I got wonderful feedback from I mean there's a, uh, an editor in East Van she's retired now but Barbara Pulling um, she did an amazing job she helped she helped me understand that I needed to be a lot more personal I, didn't, I really said nothing about my own life. She said, well, people want to know, you know. So she really coached me and helped me on that. Um, and so, it, again, it's that, it's that process back and forth with people that, uh, and, and developing what the narrative is. And I don't think I understood that before I started. You know, it's like, it's not just like one long chronological thing. It's like, you got to have themes, you got to have questions you're addressing. So I, I kind of, came to understand some of the, I'm still learning I mean I feel like I'm very much a novice at doing this mm-hmm. and I think the way that you wrote it was so everything was very humanizing to a political world that maybe Melissa and I were a little bit outside of because like you say Gene Swanson's still around but a lot of these folks aren't around so mm-hmm. for us these are people of like that <clears throat> kind of set up where we are now but they're not players in the game um And one thing that stood out was early on, you mentioned how Bruce would go for breakfast with like Harry. Right across the street. Yeah, Yeah. with Harry and with Jack Webster, who like, you know, you sent us that video link later with you you on the show. And it just, I was like, wow, they they have like a real human connection also. But then when you get on the show, like they're talking gossiping. I think you called it about (laughs) local politics over breakfast every morning. But on the show, he's just like cutthroat and sexist and oh. like I I was kind of like shocked. Well you you wrote me an email <laughs> yeah. saying that this was hard to listen to yeah. and it's hard. And, yeah. and and like I'm so glad you did that. Yeah. Because part of my own understanding and writing is learning how I think so much over the decades I denied 
my own experience as a woman mm. in politics. And I, I'm, I mean, even after writing the book and yeah. now talking about the book, again, I'm realizing, wow, I really didn't go into that enough. And so yeah. when I saw that Jack Webster clip that you saw, yeah. um, I just, I just remembered him as this kind of, you know, just curmudgeonly a, yeah. old guy, you Grumpy know, who, old. yeah. And <laughs> no. Harry was like that too. And I, but you see, I was used to these guys. Yeah. I thought it was like regular. And I would hang out with them and sit there and listen. And, you know, I was in my early 20s. And it's only now, like looking back yeah. on that clip, which was um, leading up to the 1982 civic election campaign, mm -hmm. where he, where they were so sexist towards me and George Pule too. It was, like, it's stunning. But it at the was time, we'll, yeah. play, we'll play, we'll play the clip. Whom I've known for a, a long time and I work in downtown, I said, Residents Association. Now, you are Brucey's wife. That's right, Let's Bruce Erickson. Bruce Erickson's wife. And you're running for co-op. That's right. And uh, you're both seeking and you will both serve as a husband and wife team voting together for co-op if you are both elected. Well, Bruce and I have been involved in civic politics for about 10 years. I've run for council before. I've been very active with DERA. I'm presently on the parks board. So us, both of us being involved in civic politics and me running for council is something that's certainly not new. How many little Erickson Davies babies are there now? There's just one. Just the one. Leaf, okay. who's three. Leaf is three. I Leaf think. Erickson. And will Leaf get looked after if you're both elected? Oh, yes. We'll still look after him. You okay. bet. Now, Philip Owen, tell me a little bit about yourself. You, you were so, so polite. There so was much like, tact. Yeah. He, it just blow, blows my mind because he... Um, he doesn't really give you any space to introduce no. yourself. He cuts you off. And like now, for me, listening, I think part of what was so shocking was that he, he goes, well, you know who's going to be at home taking care of the I kids? I know. Yeah. Um, like, or is Leaf going to be okay? Um, which is like, you know, mind boggling. But now also me being like six months pregnant, I was like, if somebody said that to me right now. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear you say it. that. Because yeah. to me, that's evidence that you know, the culture is changing, although mm -hmm. there's still a lot of sexism. See, at the time, this is terrible. I don't think I gave it a second thought. Yeah. But Kim, my partner, when she looked at it, we wrote an article for the, um, or I wrote an article for the Toronto Star, and she, she said to me, you've got to put in this bit about Jack Webster and, and how you kind of look down. But she felt like there was some anger there as well that I looked down and said well of course we will we'll be looking after Leaf yeah and and it, so I feel like it's been this kind of slow burn for yeah. 40 decades four four decades yeah. of understanding this experience right mm -hmm. and realizing wow that really that stuff really happened and yes you would yeah. absolutely call it out today but I didn't yeah. why didn't I because I didn't know it because it just seemed normal because these men were my mentors. Yeah, I, right. it's, it's very complicated, yeah. right? But now I'm seeing it, and I'm as shocked as you yeah. are. <laughs> Which is good. That does mean that there has been some progress in the last yeah. bit with, with women in roles of, or positions of power and, yeah. and influence. I mean, even George Pule saying, oh, now, now he wants to get his mm -hmm. wife elected. Yeah. It's like, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. It... It was hard for me to listen to it. Sure, it was a different generation, but to think that these were the leaders of of our city at the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And these were the influencing, and, and Jack Webster being one of he the was, influencing... We have the Jack mind. Webster... Uh, his award. writing award, or journalism yeah. award. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And 
it seems like in other areas you weren't afraid to uh, call people out, call things <laughs> yeah. out. Uh, uh, going to chapter one, uh, what is it? Organize, organize, organize. Uh, reading about like the heydays of Deer, the Downtown Eastside mm-hmm. Residents Association, like and the kind of like rabble rousers you were. We were. Um, yeah, so my reading, it was like, oh, dear, is this badass group that's, like, going after the system and calling out stereotypes and injustices about this neighborhood. Uh, but also you say that this inequality persists, and at a large scale, those issues are, like, ever-present. Uh, so what do you think, like, 1970s Libby would think of politics around the downtown east side today? Well, if we could go back in time and then have this vision of the future as it as we know it now, I mean, I think it would be, um, on the one hand, um, shocking that we're still dealing with many of the same issues, um, but also to note, I mean, I think to me the most important thing would be that the downtown east side still exists. It didn't get wiped out like pretty well every other inner city in North America that got gentrified, wiped out, Mm -hmm. hollowed out, um, that this community, because it is a community, still survives and is very resilient, even though there have been so many changes. Um, So I think, you know, if I went back and was looking forward, I I, I think I would feel proud of that, that this community has continued, even though there are still incredible um, inequalities around income, uh, that housing is still a major issue. Um, and that there are new issues, because back then we really didn't see, there wasn't really homelessness, you know? It didn't really exist. People lived in the crappy hotels and rooming houses, but you didn't see people literally destitute on the street. Um, the the, um, the issue of people using drugs really was not visible. Um, so there's obviously been very major shifts as well in terms of... Mm-hmm. Um, what's happening in the community and also at back then the indigenous community was very very small so the the um uh, people coming from reserve to the urban areas and establishing the downtown east side as a very strong indigenous community um that's also a major change that you know 40 years ago wasn't was very um was not not that evident that's that part is amazing because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. now it's very strong it's very much a part of the identity of the downtown east side and mm-hmm. a lot of the amazing leadership is coming from young indigenous people mm-hmm. in the community mm-hmm. yeah um there was one part in the book where you talk about bruce um kind of standing up for indigenous rights like in a way like it, with language that was very oh, much that was the like, mckenzie valley pipeline yeah. wow i found Which, that by accident like I went to the hearing. It was at the hotel, yeah. the Hyatt or something. I found it by accident. I was Googling something else, and I went, oh, wow, yeah. And I found the speech yeah. or the presentation mm-hmm. that he made for Dira. And I started reading it, and I, and I, it just, like, blew me away. It was, like, the language and the issues in terms of colonization and people being d- dispossessed yeah. of their land um, like this is what we were this raising is, 40 years yeah. ago, right? And in it's the context now of the ma- becoming like mainstream conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. But that he was that progressive to to recognize yep. Uh, yep. the impacts that it had. Um, and and people, you know, back then, like Dira was considered like 
as I say, this militant, radical, mm -hmm. you know, way off the grid group, right? But I mean, that issue was real. Yeah. And to put it on on the public agenda at, at, a, at a, a royal commission hearing, um, I think was very important. Mm -hmm. and, and then, so it, it's that kind of history that I wanted to make sure was recorded. I mean, just mm -hmm. bits of it, right? There's so much more. So that people can see the um, the early beginnings and the roots of of this of this particular community yeah. and the changes that have taken place. Yeah, and the language too around connecting, like what is an in, like indigenous um, rights are connected to these global issues, mm -hmm. right? And I think that was something you quoted Harry Rankin saying, like civil politics is just uh, stuck on like potholes and dog, dog shit. shit. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, and so, like, what's sort of the importance of municipal government taking on more global issues? If we understand that change begins at the bottom, mm -hmm. it begins at the grassroots, it begins in a local community, it begins where oppression exists, it begins where people are fighting to stop something or to maintain something. Um, it's always at the local level, and so the engagement... Um, politically at the local level is really important. And that, I think that's always been a very strong issue in Vancouver. Mm -hmm. And I, it took me years to understand what an impact DERA had politically on the city mm -hmm. overall. Even today, right, the downtown east side, DERA doesn't exist anymore. But, but the politics of the downtown east side and what happens down here has a huge impact on the city. So that connection is... Is palpable. It's very real, and it has a lot of meaning and a lot of consequences if you embrace it or if or if you ignore it. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I think that hopefully that's interesting for people to see some of the orange origins of that yeah. too, because it was sort of a forgotten neighborhood. It, it was not seen as a neighborhood. It didn't exist. You know, it was it, people down here were seen as nothing. And but we don't see that today now, right? I mean, most people in Vancouver would, would I mean, they may not like everything that they see, but they do understand that it's a real place and that people live here. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought That's here. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. yeah, no, trailing I'm... off. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I think um, kind of the the '80s was like the last time where we didn't have such an intricately woven globalized world. Mm -hmm. um, because now, like, everything has just, like, been broken open and mm -hmm. we can see everything. It feels like what we experience here. We can connect to people on the other side of the world. So I think, like, municipal government taking on more global issues also because those global issues impact community, impact, mm -hmm. like, impact civic elections in, in some ways. So I think, I hope so, anyways. Yeah, and I think people see that now as um, part of, of the political discourse mm -hmm. locally, like connecting. And and so the whole issue in the book around um, the nuclear arms race in the 80s and Vancouver mm -hmm. declaring itself a nuclear weapons-free zone, and some of the signs are still up around totally. the city. I remember seeing yeah. one of those signs. I grew up like a yeah. little bit outside the city, but when I first moved yeah. to the city, I was like, what? Mm. <laughs> Does it need to <laughs> be that stated? That was the yeah. first yeah. time that connection yeah. was being made. Uh, and... and um, 
And and there was criticism for it, right? As you say, that you know this idea that civic politics was really just about fixing streets and potholes and things like yeah. that. But this idea that we were connected globally and what mm -hmm. happened globally has an impact on people who live in the city. Yeah. We get that today, and it's a very important connection. Totally, which is uh, most changes are coming through the cities. Incredible mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. like you know see the work that you've done to to make it a nuclear-free zone uh, and to have me grow up think, yeah, well, obviously, is that even <laughs> necessary to, like, say? But it was like a, a fight that you took mm -hmm. on, right? So that's pretty um, incredible that I could grow up, like, being oblivious to this because mm -hmm. of the work that you've done. <laughs> this is why we need to always keep talking and yeah. recording and writing and, like, history. I mean, yeah. um, I'm thinking of um, uh, the book that just came out about labor history in B.C., mm -hmm. I mean, it's so important. I mean, labor history has mm -hmm. been so critical to the development of our city and even yeah. of, of, of BC, right? So, and a lot of people don't know that, right? Mm -hmm. the, the history of labor and the struggles that took place. Rod Nickelborough is the mm -hmm. book, and it's the history of the labor movement in BC. It's an incredible book. I mean, it's a big book with lots of photographs yeah. of this history. And, and the downtown east side, like, during the Depression, what was called the Powell Street Grounds, now Oppenheimer Park, was the center of many of the struggles of right. unemployed workers. Yeah. So. Right, like you, you wrote, mentioned in the book, that's where the On to Ottawa truck yeah. was, and yeah. it was initiated. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it was mm -hmm. all centered. Like, things are happening right yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> Do you mind if we uh, talk about Ottawa? Oh, <laughs> Ottawa. Is that okay? <laughs> What's going on in Ottawa? Uh, uh, to me, the job like, of a, a member of parliament uh, seems very far away from me, so it's wild to have uh, in real life. You're sitting right here, former MP. <laughs> I'm wondering how your experiences and um, like your trajectory as an organizer and in politics shaped how you were in your job as an MP. Um, you know, being an activist or and being out, uh, which w wasn't a thing in Parliament. Um, if you could speak a little to what that was like for you because uh, I, I think I struggled with the very same question like what am I meant to do as mm -hmm. a member of parliament I was used to being a city councillor city council is a very egalitarian place each councillor you know is there in the same room at the same time they're all voting debating in Ottawa it's very hierarchical established by parties and how many seats you have it's very focused on the party itself and I went to Ottawa. I went to Ottawa knowing what I had to do because people were dying of drug overdoses and were infected with HIV AIDS. It was a crisis, the sort of the first wave of the crisis of, of, uh, of drugs in the community. But I didn't know how to approach it. And, I, I, and, and it was really when I began to think about how would I do this if I was an organizer? So there's a few stories in the book about how I approached the issue, and I would say that critical to working on those issues was maintaining um, a, a very close connection with groups like Van Du. Um, that's what kept me going. They needed an ally in Ottawa, but I also needed them to understand what was going on truly on the ground. In Ottawa, I found it was very easy for people to be kind of drawn into this vortex of all the intrigue. And we still see that today, mm -hmm. right? You know, like who's doing what and somebody did this and, you know, and it, and it just feeds on itself. Yeah. And 
for me, I was much more focused on issues and what what I what I felt we needed to do to fight on those issues, mm. whether it was on housing and homelessness or people who, who use drugs and how people are criminalized or um, uh, the missing and murdered women, sex worker rights. It was, I think, learning again how to bring the experience I'd had as an organizer to Parliament. So I always, it's funny, I always saw myself for, first and foremost as an organizer, not as a parliamentarian, even though I became House Leader for the NDP. So it was right in the middle of all that internal stuff that goes on in mm-hmm. Ottawa, in the House. Which, cool. That's really yeah, cool. it, was, it was fascinating. <laughs> I learned so much. But even then, I, I mean, it felt like um, dual lives, you know, like I'd be in Ottawa and the, and I was so immersed in this minutiae of what was going on in the house mm. and this emotional, that emotional. This was about, especially in the minority parliaments where things were very fragile and you never knew what was going to happen, not only day to day, but literally hour by hour. But there was this other life in Vancouver that I would come back to every week, every weekend or when the parliament was sitting, I'd be here the whole week. Um, and but that's what kept me grounded, right? And I remember having these conversations with Jack Layton when he was the leader and saying, you know, I'll, I'm happy to be your house leader. I'll learn. I'll do my best. But I have to keep working on these issues because that's that's what I'm elected for. That's what's important in our community. Mm-hmm. And so it was that kind of duality. And I look back now and think it was pretty weird, <laughs> it, you know, because they were so different. Um, but somehow I managed to reconcile them most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, there were times when it was kind of frantic <laughs> and mm-hmm. stressful. Yeah, like you said, getting caught up in you know the minute by minute, hour by hour mm-hmm. of being in Parliament. Uh, I was just remembering that members of Parliament are representatives of their ridings, of their communities, and the people who elected mm-hmm. them. And uh, sometimes people forget that. Yeah, right. That it's not just about and party politics. It's no. about yeah. The people but you're working I, but for. But I think, you know, I had the incredible privilege to represent um, East Vancouver that is an activist community. I mean, you mm-hmm. think, I mean, I think I know lots of neighborhoods and communities across Canada. And, you know, there's centers of activism. But Vancouver East, wow. You know, there's so much that's in the history and what happens now. And so I always feel like that was just an incredible thing, right? Being connected to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas for many MPs, if they're representing, you know, a suburban riding or, um, I mean, I really, I, I sounds like I'm being very dismissive. I mean, there'd be different issues there. Mm-hmm. Like I would not know how to represent a huge er, rural riding. I wouldn't know how to go about doing it. Right. My experience is so different. And that's what's so amazing about our parliamentary system is you have these MPs who represent such hugely different kinds of populations and communities. Um, but for me, because it was East Van and the history we have and the activism we have, it propelled me, you know, every day. It compelled mm-hmm. me as well to, like, stay on top of stuff um, and to keep moving, to keep moving and to keep working. Yeah. Which shows amazing longevity. <laughs> so yeah. many decades. You do build up of, a lot of stamina. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you you told us that you had written sort of an alternate ending to the book, uh, which oh. was an open letter to the to youth. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was and where that came from? And, and well, it actually came from M. Yeah, <laughs> give him full credit. Um, but the heart and soul of the letter. Where did that come from? Oh. Um, <laughs> 
Well, just just the idea that there were certain things or truths that I felt I didn't come across as a result of experience and you kind of want to share that right I don't want to I don't want to lecture people everybody finds their own path you find your own wisdom your own truth but I also learned that having people around you who have done other things or maybe similar to what you're doing you can learn from that so I wanted to share I wanted this to also be a book that that younger activists could pick up and who are struggling with this issue of how do they engage with this crazy political world of formal politics, right? How do they make change? And that was very much um, uh, uh, current for me throughout the book that kept me writing that question, right? How does change happen? How can I share that with people? And so the letter at the end was to... Um, to sort of distill some of the things that I'd learned, right? This idea that you're not alone, Mm -hmm. um, that you should go join something, you know, that you're much more powerful when you join something. But the other thing was, like, giving space to people, you know? Like, um, that I don't know it all. None of us know it all. This idea of sharing space and experience and building on that, making it more powerful is really important. It's about cooperation. It is about collaboration. And, you know, if I had negative experiences, it was always about the, sometimes the discord on the left, right, where people would end up fighting, like, over things that sometimes in the long run you think, really, come on, like, we have to get through this. We have to get past it. We have Mm -hmm. to stand, we have to learn how to stand together and get through these differences. And I kind of wanted to get that over. So the idea, like Am's idea of a letter that would be written uh, with some of these understandings, I thought was a great idea. It did end up being cut out. (laughs) Um, I hope that you'll publish it. (laughs) Well, I did send it to Am. It's actually a very short letter. But but the ideas in that letter are still there in the conclusion of the book. So, uh, but the idea of the letter itself, it, it... it didn't actually stay in. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I think the the intention behind the letter is here because you're sitting here yeah. talking to two yeah. women in their 20s who are interested in trying to engage. So, mm-hmm. you know, these themes are important for us to um, hear because we do burn out also. And it's mm-hmm, nice yeah. to hear these things from somebody who's like really experienced it all. Um, but, you know, I'm learning as much. It's not yeah. a one-way street. Yeah. I, you know, every day... And now, too, because I'm still involved in things, um, I learn from younger activists like, wow, that's incredible. I didn't know that. Or that's a great way of doing, you know. So it's it's mm-hmm. not like the way it used to be is the way it has to be. Yeah. Like things evolve. How we how we work together evolves. Um, I mean, just this space here mm-hmm. at 312 Main Street, the idea of, you know, people sharing workspace and working together and collaborating is, you know, a really great thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think it is like a, a learning unfolding process mm-hmm. and that's what I love you know it is about engaging yeah mm-hmm. cool I think that's a good place to end yeah thank you so much <laughs> and oh I'm, my pleasure I'm so Lovely looking to talk to you yeah. I'm Both. so looking forward to uh, the event later this month uh, thank you so much Libby and yeah, my pleasure we'll talk to you soon that was our conversation with Libby Davies Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Libby for coming in and sharing with us. 
And don't forget, we'll be launching Libby's memoir at SFU on May 22nd at 7 p.m. Uh, you can find details for that at sfuwoodwards.ca. And it's a free event. All you have to do is register. Thanks so much, and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>